The History Channel original podcast. History This Week, July 13th, 44 BC. I'm Sally Helm. If the ancient Roman senator Marcus Junius Brutus were a listener of this podcast, he would prefer that we identify this date as the 13th of Quinctilus or Quintilus, but not July. The name July is new. It honors Julius Caesar, and Marcus Brutus doesn't like it. Because Marcus Brutus has been trying his best to get people to stop thinking about Caesar. Four months ago, almost to the day, Brutus was a leader of the group of senators that stabbed Caesar to death. He says he did it to save the Republic. Caesar had recently named himself Dictator for Life. Brutus hoped that people would rally around the assassins for killing the dictator and restoring the Republic. Some of them do, but a lot of them don't. The backlash has essentially banished Brutus from Rome. Now, he's holed up in a villa in the Italian countryside, trying desperately to make his case to his fellow Romans. To do that, he's sponsoring a games. They coincide with a festival called the Ludi Apollinares. In the large stone structure of Rome's Circus Maximus, there are chariot races and theater performances and beast hunts in honor of the god Apollo. Brutus's goal? To put on a games so good, they'll create a wave of popular approval and convince the people to call him back to Rome as their rightful leader. It is now the 13th day of July, or of Quinctilus, depending on your perspective. It is the very last day of the Ludi Apollinares. The games have just concluded. And as the dust settles in the Circus Maximus, and the chariot-pulling horses are sent back to their stalls, and the people of Rome hang up their ceremonial wreaths and put back on their everyday tunics, the exiled Brutus is about to find out if his plan worked. Today, a shocking assassination has left a power vacuum, and three men vie to fill it. Can a play convince the masses that Brutus was right to stick a dagger into Caesar? And what is the meaning of a sudden streak of light against the sky? Is it a blessing? or a curse. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's been four months since Marcus Brutus and his fellow conspirators stabbed Julius Caesar to death. Now, instead of following through on his plan to take power in Rome and restore the glorious republic— Brutus is holed up in a country estate, 
unable to return to Rome, brooding about what went wrong. Jeffrey Sumi is a classics professor at Mount Holyoke College. He takes us back to a moment four months ago when things began to unravel for Brutus. He and his fellow conspirators have just recently killed Julius Caesar on the floor of the Roman Senate House. Because Brutus thought Caesar was a tyrant, and he thought the people would agree. Some do, but many don't. Rome is divided and in chaos. Caesar is dead, and now the question is, what to do with his body? More to the point, should he be given a state funeral? In Roman tradition, if you have a tyrant and someone who's acting in the against the interests of the Republic, as the conspirators would have argued Caesar was doing, um, there's a very clear tradition about what you do with his body. You impale it on a hook and drag it through the streets and toss it into the Tiber River. That's what Brutus and his allies want, to disgrace Caesar by feeding his corpse to the fishes. But Caesar's second-in-command, Mark Antony, says, not so fast. Before the assassination, Mark Antony was Caesar's consul, second only to the dictator himself. You can think of him as Caesar's understudy, meaning he believes the moment for his star turn has arrived. His path to power clearly was to take Caesar's place as much as he could. The meeting is convened and the debate begins. Mark Antony is Team Caesar. He goes big, arguing that not only should Caesar have a state-sponsored funeral, but it should be held in the Roman Forum, which would be an immense honor. Because the better Caesar looks, the better Mark Antony looks. He wanted to preserve Caesar's memory as much as possible because it was his advantage to do so. Brutus and the conspirators, meanwhile, want Caesar to be swiftly forgotten, or maybe remembered very occasionally as an ugly detour on the Republic's march towards glory. So they say, no state funeral. We will have none of Antony's naked political ploy. Treat him as a tyrant. Get rid of him and move on. You can almost see almost like two political parties in Rome. But then Brutus gets to his feet. He stands before Antony and the Senate as the descendant of a noble Roman family, a lineage that goes back to Lucius Brutus, the very first consul of the Roman Republic, a person who helped usher in a government of the people, not a government of kings. So there's this tradition in Roman history that the earliest form of government was a kingship. The kings became tyrants. Lucius Brutus got rid of the kings. Um, and so this is the Brutus that, you know, Marcus Brutus, at least partly modeling himself after. He feels that he too has overthrown a king by killing Caesar. And so surely he'll condemn this proposal to give Caesar a burial fit for royalty. And yet... Brutus sees that all this infighting is tearing Rome apart. So as a kind of olive branch to Caesar's supporters, he says, go ahead, have your funeral. What's the worst that could happen? The historian Plutarch will later write that Brutus has just made a total and irrevocable error. The funeral is held the next day. Caesar's body is wrapped in gold and purple cloth Professional mourners wail in chorus as the body is carried into the forum atop an ivory couch 
Mark Antony steps forward. The crowd grows hushed. Mark Antony gave this really eloquent but also provocative speech. You might know Shakespeare's version. Antony begins, friends, Romans, countrymen. Lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault. And grievously hath Caesar answered it. Antony knows that Rome is listening, and especially that Roman soldiers are listening, men who fought with Caesar, men who are now still scattered across the empire, watching this all unfold. Antony knew that if it ever came to civil war, again, he he needed soldiers on his side. And Caesar's soldiers, Caesar's veteran soldiers, were very sympathetic to Caesar's memory and wanted to preserve it. Antony ends his speech. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar. And I must pause till it come back to me. And then all hell breaks loose. Mourners pour forward, a mob of them. They hoist the couch holding Caesar's body onto their shoulders and carry it out of the forum. They parade it through the streets, then return to the forum where they set Caesar's body ablaze their impromptu funeral pyre right there. And then they set up an altar marking the spot uh, where he'd been cremated and, and effectively became worshiping him almost as a god. Watching this, Brutus realizes, Rome is not safe for me now. He flees the city to plot his next move. With Brutus out of the city, Antony is poised to become the new ruler of the Roman Empire. There's just one problem. Caesar has left an heir. His great-nephew Gaius Octavius, or Octavian. A teenager with limited experience. But thanks to Caesar's will, Octavian does have a couple of big things going for him. By the terms of Caesar's will, not only was he Caesar's primary heir, which meant he got an enormous amount of money, But he also was given Caesar's name. So Gaius Octavius then became Gaius Julius Caesar. To some Romans, it's as if Julius Caesar is speaking from beyond the grave, saying, you want another Caesar? Well, here he is. At the moment Caesar is killed, Octavian is doing what teenagers sometimes do. He's studying abroad in what is then part of Greece and now Albania. He finds out about his great-uncle Julius's assassination in a letter from his mother, which includes a strict instruction. Don't come back to the city. Do not show your face in Rome. It's just too risky, because she thought if the conspiracy grew as Caesar's heir, that he would be next. Next meaning next to be stabbed to death. This is wise motherly advice. Octavian ignores it. After all, he is a teenager. He rushes to Rome, the seat of power. And that is where this previously obscure relative of Julius Caesar's meets with Mark Antony, the celebrated Roman commander. And? There is a snubbing moment where Antony 
meets up with Octavian, but just dismisses him. And this is a kid who owes everything to his name. He doesn't take him seriously, really, at all. Antony feels that Octavian is no threat, and in fact, could be useful. It's clear that the young man has come to Rome to present himself as Caesar's heir. That puts Octavian directly in conflict at this moment, not with Mark Antony, but with Brutus, who believes that the last thing Rome needs is another Caesar. Antony likes the idea of letting Octavian take on Brutus, so he tolerates him. For now. Antony, clearly he feels some need to accommodate Octavian. And it may be because, again, he just says, okay, I can do this and then get rid of the kid forever kind of thing. Antony's plan? Let Brutus and Octavian battle it out. And when they're done, Antony will swoop in and take power. Should Octavian win, somehow, Antony is confident he can be swept aside. Or, as Professor Sumi put it, Get rid of the kid forever. It's the first, but not the last, time that someone will fatally underestimate Octavian. It's the summer of 44 BC, and Julius Caesar is dead. Mark Antony, the military leader who has for years served Caesar faithfully, remains a powerful force in Rome. Octavian, Caesar's great-nephew, is back in town and hoping to grab the reins. And Brutus, the once-great statesman, is biding his time outside of Rome, trying to figure a way back in. All three of these men understand a basic truth about politics. He who controls the narrative will gain the upper hand. In this case, the narrative revolves around one question. Was Caesar good or was Caesar bad? Octavian wants to say, Caesar was good. His legacy should be carried on in the form of me, Gaius Julius Caesar, his chosen heir. Brutus wants to say, Caesar was bad. A tyrant whose death was the best thing that could happen to the Roman Republic. A republic which now should be restored and led by me the great killer of kings. Antony, for the moment, stands watching from the sidelines, confident in his ultimate victory. Brutus and Octavian will battle it out, not with armies, but with festivals. And Brutus will go first. There's a lot at stake in these games, you know, maybe even more so than usual. Uh, This is his chance to maybe win over popular opinion, right? To win people to his side. Brutus's plan is to throw a wildly successful games at the Festival of the Ludi Apollinaries, return to Rome in triumph, and take over. And the first element of pleasing the people at your games? Entertain them. I would say three components to the entertainment. There were the, what were called Ludi Skyniki. The theater. Ludi Kirkenses. Chariot races and then something called the Venatio, which was a wild beast hunt or wild beast show. And basically what Roman officials would try to do is to import sometimes the most exotic animals they could find. You know, lions, panthers or leopards. We hear about giraffes, hippopotamus, crocodiles. Definitely animals not indigenous to Italy, you might say. Are there records of people being like, oh my gosh, we've never seen a giraffe before 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's often in our sources, they'll tell us something like this person was the first one ever to put on display like a lion in Rome. So Brutus goes out and assembles his beasts. He coordinates the chariot races. Fastest horses and the best riders, done. And then he turns to the most important thing, the play. In ancient Rome, plays are a way for politicians to speak to the people. And Brutus wants his to go perfectly. He went to Naples to find some of the best actors that he could hire for his games. Brutus himself goes to find these actors. Actors who will perform a play with this message. Disposing of Caesar was just and right. And his assassin, Brutus, can be trusted to guide Rome. The name of the play that Brutus chooses to put on is The Brutus. (laughs) I'm being serious. The play is actually a real play from ancient times called The Brutus, which is perfect for Brutus's plan. It is a play that tells the story of his early ancestor, Lucius Brutus, the toppler of kings. The subtext would be that like Lucius Brutus, he also was a tyrant killer. And Lucius Brutus, my ancestor, helped found our Roman Republic, where every man has a voice and no man is above the law. I think that's the message that Marcus Brutus was trying to send, that we did the same thing, killed the tyrant, Caesar, and we essentially refounded the Republic. I'm not the villain here. I'm the hero. Finally, everything is ready. The festival kicks off at the Circus Maximus. It's hot, loud, and ordinary Romans show up. They're living through this time of upheaval, of fear. Julius Caesar slain, all these rivals competing for power. I mean, people want to know what's happening. And one of the ways you find out what's happening is to go to the theater, to get a sense of the climate of the city at the time, the political climate. Brutus knows people are looking for answers, and he wants to tell them his version of the story about what is happening in Rome. But Brutus is not in Rome. He's still holed up out of town. And when spectators sit down to watch this production with these famous actors handpicked in Naples, the play that they watch is not the Brutus. The record doesn't tell us exactly what happened. But at the last minute, Brutus's opponents swap in a different play. A different play that doesn't seem to be at all politically topical. It wouldn't have served the same political purpose that the Brutus would have. It's like he was trying to put on this political thriller and it's a rom-com or a... (laughs) Or something like that. But just not, but yeah, clearly not what he would have wanted. But then, according to one source, something happens that is exactly what Brutus wanted. In the theater, kind of chants rising up from the crowd in favor of the conspirators. Even though this play has nothing to do with the assassination, Brutus's dream seems to be coming true. A crowd of Romans enters the Circus Maximus, demanding that he and the other conspirators be forgiven for the assassination and recalled to Rome. But then, another group of Romans comes in to stop the show. Kind of answering chant or rebuking chant from supporters of Caesar. 
they yell that the conspirators are traitors who should be punished for their crimes. Their message? You killed Caesar. Never come back. That second group drowns out the Brutus supporters. They have the final word. To put it in theatrical terms, Brutus's play is a flop. His games end. And the narrative has not really changed. Brutus is no closer to becoming the leader of Rome. Now it's Octavian's turn. He announces a games with a single theme, honoring Julius Caesar. These are the kinds of games that really would have appealed, especially to Caesar's veteran soldiers, but probably to the larger populace in Rome. Octavian's goal is to remind the people of the kind of giant parties that Julius Caesar threw. There was one legendary dinner party in particular. We think that he had a banquet for 180,000 people. Wow. And so... Whoa! Wait, it took me a second. Yeah. 180,000 people? (laughs) 180,000 people. He showed up in his slippers, which I always think is a great, you know, this great image of, you know, like he's everybody's at his house, you know, but it was out, you know, in the forum. So Octavian has some big slippers to fill. His games happen just days after Brutus's at the end of July. Octavian, of course, advertises the name July, not Quinctilus. And he kicks things off with a grand procession. There are magistrates, charioteers, musicians, dancers, singing as they file through the Circus Maximus. And then the images of the gods would also be paraded along. And so Caesar's image was was in the circus procession. Octavian has made sure of this. The crowd is carrying a statue of Caesar on their shoulders, placed among the gods. This smacks of Caesar's regal power, which, you know, of course, would have been anathema to the conspirators and all the supporters of the conspirators. Those supporters still exist. The anti-Caesar forces may be down, but they're not out. And then a comet appears in the sky. Usually comets were considered harbingers of doom. (laughs) You know, they're not usually considered any kind of positive thing. All of Rome looks to the heavens as an icy ribbon of light cuts across the sky. During these games, people are getting together in crowds, whether it's the theater, the circus, in the forum, what what have you, and they're looking at this comet. And so there's got to be some kind of talk happening in terms of trying to understand it and trying to interpret it. Octavian is also in the Circus Maximus, looking up at that comet. And he does not see doom. He sees an opportunity. He gives his interpretation to the people of Rome. That thing in the sky, it's not a comet. It's the divine soul of Julius Caesar. Caesar's soul ascending to heaven, which means that it was interpreted as his apotheosis, an indication of his divinity. And this did happen later. I mean, two years later, January 42 BC, he's, the Senate decreed him a god. He became Demus Julius, the deified Julius Caesar. And if Julius Caesar is a god, that makes Octavian God's heir, whose destiny is to rule Rome. 
in the course of three months, he's gone from distant relative of a dead tyrant to practically a demigod himself, thanks in large part to his games at the Circus Maximus. Clearly, he seems to have political savvy in terms of understanding which way the political winds are blowing and being able to take advantage of things like this. Brutus realizes that he cannot defeat this new Caesar in the court of public opinion. So he gathers an army. But not even two years later, Octavian and his army will defeat Brutus at the Battle of Philippi. When it's clear to Brutus that all is lost, he kills himself on the battlefield. Octavian now has one last man to defeat, Mark Antony, which Octavian does a decade later at the Battle of Actium. Afterward, Mark Antony too takes his own life. Octavian wins it all. He goes on to become Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, beginning a dynasty that will last 400 years. Over the course of his long life, he reshapes Rome into a superpower that will dominate for centuries. I mean, if he had died at the age of 30, you know, probably been another civil war, and who knows what would have happened. But that gave him the opportunity to remain in power and to establish a succession that then would ensure that the system of government that he created would continue on after he died. Octavian dies at the age of 77. On his deathbed, surrounded by his confidants, he's said to have asked them a question that seems to recall those wild theatrics at the Circus Maximus. Have I played the part well, he says? Then applaud me as I exit. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For other moments throughout history that are worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please send us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. We are reading and listening, and we would really love to hear from you, so please reach out. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Sumi of Mount Holyoke College, author of Ceremony and Power, Performing Politics in Rome Between Republic and Empire. This episode was produced by Rebecca Nolan, sound designed by Dan Rosato, and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Morgan Givens, and me, Sally Helm. Our intern is Francesca Mevs. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.